Hi everyone, Thomas Valentine here, and welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. We have another exciting conversation to share with you between Vimala Sara and Gary Sanders. This was one of those conversations that I was freaking out while recording. <laughs> I was texting people and I was like, OMG, I can't wait for you to listen to this. <laughs> but before I send you over there, I want to tell you about our next BRN Academy, where we host guest teachers every month for a live Dharma Talk podcast, where you have the opportunity to ask questions afterwards and engage with the teachers. September 1st, we are hosting Shahara Godfrey from East Bay Meditation Center. We will have more info about that on our site and Facebook page soon. If you are near the Olympia, Washington area, we have a free day-long retreat coming up with Buddhist recovery teacher Vince Cullen at the end of August 30th and 31st. Find out more at waking-up.eventbrite.com. Join us as we sit, walk, and practice the integration of Buddhist principles, including loving-kindness and forgiveness, as a program of waking up or recovering your life's possibilities and potentiality. Lastly, if you are moved by this podcast and want to offer Donna or donation, we are currently using all donations towards scholarships for people to attend the International Buddhist Recovery Summit. You'd be giving members of our Buddhist recovery community an amazing opportunity of connection and healing. To donate, go to BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donate. And now, let me introduce the enlightening Vimalasara and the fabulous Gary Sanders. Hi, Gary. It's um, great to be in conversation with you. It'd be great if you could um, introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Bimalasara. Uh, I'm my name is Gary Sanders, and I'm a teacher at Portland Insight Meditation Community in Portland, Oregon. I don't know how much more of an intro you want than that. I, I helped found Refuge Recovery. Um, one of the original founders and, and now part of the recovery Dharma move, movement. And yeah. And, you know, and I do want to start by saying I've spent time with you, Vimosara, and then Thomas, who's, you know, uh, who invited me, hosted me to this call. And I have a lot of love in my heart for both of you. And so, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the Dharma shining through because I think that when we're Dharma practitioners, that, love is the thing that really shines through. In fact, I was reading a book on mindfulness and it said that when somebody doesn't practice, uh, if anything unethical arises, it's a bit like a hair falling on the palm of the hand. But when somebody does practice and they've been unethical, it's like a hair falling in the eye. 
And that just gave me goosebumps, you know, that thing of the proof of practice, that practice opens up our hearts, doesn't it? Yes. Well, and then also points to the fact and, and you know, the, the bigger conversation, you know, the difference between secular mindfulness and then the true Buddhist path, which is not just, you know, training our minds, but, you know, until we clean up our acts, until we start living ethically, it's really hard to sit with ourselves. It's hard to deepen our practice if we're still out there, you know, doing harming ourselves and others. So sometimes people aren't even aware that they're living unethically. I mean, one of the things that my teacher always says is that if you're meditating and you're having strong negative mental states, then really look at your ethical practice. That's a sign of saying that actually your ethics are out of sync because often people just aren't aware that they're being unethical. Sure. Yeah, and, and completely dependent on uh, it will that unconscious, um, it will just the, the unconscious way of meeting the world and, and meeting experience and then, and, and, you know, and, and dealing with yourself. So many things are modeled to us and imprinted on us, you know, growing up. And then, of course, all our pain and our trauma. And then we throw addiction in there too. Sure. Yeah. I, I certainly, exactly. I, boy, when I was out there still using and drinking, I prided myself on the fact that I didn't have a conscience anymore yeah yeah exactly anyway um gary when i was thinking about having a conversation with you what came to mind was do you remember when we first met yeah the second gen x buddhist teachers conference right exactly and do you remember one of the things that i said to both you and dave smith If I remember correctly, I, I, I think you essentially said that there was room for all of us. You know, we had we were both kind of starting these new Buddhist recovery programs and that, you know, hopefully that we could work together and we could work hand in hand and support each other. There was that. But I remind you one of the things that I, I said to you and um, one of the things that, you know, I really, you know, when I when I think of refuge recovery, of course, I, I think of uh, Noah Levine. And one of the things that I've always said that Noah managed to do was to bring was to change the demographics of the Buddhist uh the, the Buddhist community that actually he brought in and you're part, you're one of the founders of Refuge Recovery. So I have to credit you for that, that actually, that you made more diversity in the Buddhist community. Because one of the things I said to both you and Dave was, once upon a time, if I had seen you, I would have walked across the road mm. because I would have been scared shitless of my life because I would have seen big guy with tattoos, short hair, their national front, they hate me, I'm going to turn the other way. Do you remember me saying that? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so my question is, is how did you, how did you manage to change the demographics of the Buddhist community? Because I, I just, I think it's amazing that there is a particular population that has come into the Buddhist community. It isn't just the white middle class uh, person anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and that just w with me first learning about Buddhism, and I think, you know, the first book, book I read 28 years ago or so was Suzuki Roshi's, you know, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And then Zen was the tradition, the the, the practice that I was most familiar with. And, and, and it probably even and for whatever reason, the most accessible to me. 
And when I showed up in groups like that, and it was, you know, older white people, more affluent, um, uh, you know, maybe even a little more into ritual uh, than what I would prefer. And, you know, and so I didn't feel welcome or at home in those kind of situations. And then when somebody finally uh, turned me on to Noah's first book, Dharma Punks, and then I learned, you know, and I was living in the, the Los Angeles vicinity and learning about that community and, you know, and showing up and then seeing there was already that kind of diversity, you know, because of, you know, it's, it's attraction, right? Uh, there, you have a, you have a younger person with tattoos that's, you know, started the group and then that attracts kind of like-minded individuals, uh, people that didn't feel at home in, you know, in LA, it was predominantly, you know, like I love Trudy Goodman and I was a part of Inside, Inside LA and, you know, and I consider her one of my teachers. And every time I went there, it was rich, white, older ladies that I was, you know, in dyads with and, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> you know, and sitting next to and sharing about our experiences, which, you know, a lot of times were very different. And so, finding a community where people kind of looked, you know, similar or at least diverse for sure. Not just rich, white, older ladies, but you know, that uh, there's that diversity of look, that diversity of experience, that diversity of vocabulary, the um, without the strict ritual and, and Trudy's wasn't, uh, Trudy's organization wasn't so much about ritual, but you know, the Zen communities I was a part of previous, uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was more, you know, less formal uh, and and more welcoming. And so that that was the first time I felt at home somewhere. And I would imagine that's why so many other people were attracted. They finally found a place they felt welcomed and not so um, like an alien. Mm. And how do you think that this particular demographic has influence or impacted the Buddhist community? Because I know for myself that if if we had more African descent people, more Western people of color people sitting in these meditation halls, there would be a difference, there would be an impact, there would be an influence. How do you think this particular demographic has impacted the Buddhist community? You know, in so many different ways, um, I, I guess, Boy, what nuance do I want to even start with? One of the, one of the big things uh, just recently, you know, you and I were a part of the was it was it the fifth or the sixth GenX Buddhist Teacher Conference that just happened, mm -hmm. and and so many of us were talking about, uh, you know, we're part of these lineages where it's first or second generation Western Buddhist teachers, and the attitudes and 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 the 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 way we hold. The Dharma, the way that we present the Dharma, the way that we interact with our Sanghas is much different than these first generation. You know, a lot of these these old hippies that are, you know, all about, you know, hugging without consent and, you know, and, and uh, you know, and I, that's that's one thing. You know, we are we are talking more about consent. We are talking more about uh, about ethics. We're talking about, you know, the student teacher relationships that uh, that have not been honored you know, previously, uh, we're, we're, you know, and, and the thing I pointed to earlier, the, the whole thing about ritual, you know, and there, there's certainly there's, I, I can just speak about the, the insight tradition now, you know, that I'm a part of, there's certainly, you know, our, our friends in the Tibetan and the Vajrayana lineages that are younger, that are, you know, very much about their devotional practices, but the great 
the greater community that I'm closer to, you know, it's not so much about uh, about the rituals. It's it's a little more secular. It's a little more, and, and for me, when it's a little more secular, it's a little more welcoming. And and I would imagine that draws a lot of people. You know, the, the I think that's that's fairly common uh, that younger people these days, millennials. I'm not a millennial. I'm older than that, <laughs> but <laughs> millennials are 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 not so religious these days. So. You know, we're 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 creating, we're filling these communities with with people that are serious about practice, but not so serious about dogma. You know, not so serious about the form. We're we're more about, uh, at least you know, the people that I'm talking to. We're more about freedom. You know, we're more about about looking at all the aspects, about ethics, about about you know, deepening our practice, about and, and especially about community and making it safe for everybody and, and welcoming. I mean, there is one thing that I wanted to kind of talk to the the fact of bringing the the punk the biker the tattooed person to to the rooms of meditation and of course there has been that that criticism that actually what's happened is is that there's been what some people have labeled the bro culture and I you know I you know I'll, I'll be quite honest uh over the years I had heard stuff around the that criticism around refuge recovery, that there was aggressiveness, that women weren't treated appropriately. Like, can you speak to that bro culture? Was there something as sure. a bro culture? Yeah. And and I, I wouldn't say just specifically refuge recovery, but, you know, refuge recovery spawned out of the Against the Stream centers in, in Los Angeles. And of course, through the years, more Against the Stream centers opened in, you know, San Francisco, Nashville, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so against the stream and then the Dharma punks communities that those are the peer led communities throughout the world that were associated. And then, and then refuge recovery kind of spawned out of, out of those communities, you know, this, the, we, we shared our format with the, the Dharma punks communities and, and it, you know, spread from there. And yeah. And well, again, because of attraction, you know, I, I felt welcome because there was a, you know, there was a, a dude <laughs> we're talking bro culture <laughs> there was a dude that kind of looked like me and kind of talked like me and and was uh, friendly and welcoming to me and then as i became part of that that culture that scene there you know at against the stream in los angeles you know there was a lot of dudes that looked like us you know with tattoos and 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 you know speaking a little salty and and but also serious about practice and uh when you get well and there, there's a big issue about hindsight here you know now all these years later i it was easy for me to fit into that to to play up the the the, the alpha male the you know I'm, I'm a big guy i'm six foot four and i got a loud voice and 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 i could play that up easy and fit in and uh and i did you know i i, I was i was i was definitely a part of that and i was you know, I, I, I like joking around and, and you, know, you get a bunch of guys together and it gets a little inappropriate sometimes. And and then as I was part of that community and going through facilitator training and, you know, pre-teacher training, I got to hear the voices of the women within the community more and more. And, you know, and I started hearing previous women that had gone through the facilitator training, you know, that were outside of Los Angeles. They that, you know, I would hear complaints that they felt a, completely not a part of. They felt separated. They felt unsupported, you know, because they 
didn't fit into that inner circle. They didn't fit into that, that, that bro culture, um, you know, through, and then as more years went on, most of the women I know that went through that facilitator training at against the stream and as well as teachers that were empowered, uh, most of them, not all of them, but, but most of them had all, uh, intentionally left the communities themselves because of this bro culture, because they didn't feel a part of, because they, they weren't supported, because their voices weren't heard. And I didn't, you know, and I didn't feel good about that. You know, as, as my practice deepened, as I grew as a person, as I got healthier and started becoming more and more aware of my, um, the, the white privilege that I had and, you know, and the, and the male privilege and the, and the, and the privilege of that inner circle there, uh, I didn't feel good about that. And so, you know, I, I, I did uh, start to remove myself from that, uh, that Sangha, uh, that, that certainly the inner circle and, and that, that inner Sangha because, you know, women didn't feel supported and I didn't want to perpetuate that. And I didn't feel good about that. So, I mean, that's interesting because you were, as you say, a co-founder of Refuge Recovery. So why did you feel the need to kind of found something like Refuge Recovery? In the first place what was the intention yeah you know originally uh you know and i told myself this story for quite a while <laughs> i you know i showed up to against the stream because i read noah's first book at dharma punks about him uh getting sober through meditation and through walking the buddhist path and so that that kind of gave me the in uh you know and, and just personally i previous to that i was so resistant to getting sober in 12 step, but then I finally surrendered to it in to, to AA specifically because there just wasn't great fellowship around for any other alternative research, you know, like uh, secular sobriety and, and, you know, and, uh, you know, some of these other programs, they just didn't have the fellowship. So I surrendered to the AA program. I read Kevin Griffin's book, one breath at a time. And, you know, it took that approach to working the steps, very successful for me. And then when against the stream opened, I, kept bugging Noah about, Hey, you know, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a part of AA and I lead groups every day and, and it's great. But like, you know, I would love to do a recovery meeting here at against the stream, you know, but the more than half of our song is again, because of attraction, because of Noah's story, more than half the people that showed up to any of these, whether it's the centers or the, the, the associated groups, more than half the Sangha was in recovery or wanting to get sober or, uh, you know, to, what, to whatever degree, whether, you know, they had some relationship with sobriety or at least an intention for sobriety. So, you know, I was bugging them about doing, to, about leading meetings, recovery meetings specifically. And I just had, you know, 12-step Buddhist in mind uh, and 12-step version of Buddhism uh, or, or, or Buddhist version of 12-step, not, not that book specifically, uh, to be clear. Uh, and, you know, that's a story I was telling myself. And then, and then, you know, and then we started this program specifically for our sanghas in LA. It was just an experiment for us, you know, and there was the, the conversation going on uh, between, I think, Noah and Kevin Griffin and, and Alan Marlott about, you know, do we need to keep using the 12 steps or can we just use the original teachings of the Buddha uh, that, that, you know, again, that, 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 that thing the Buddha said, I teach, I teach dukkha and I teach the end of dukkha. I teach suffering, the end of suffering. Mm -hmm. I teach dissatisfaction, the end of dissatisfaction addiction is dukkha right so 
we we have these these it definitely is dukkha <laughs> yeah for sure definitely <laughs> is dukkha yeah dukkha 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 yeah yeah but you know that that was the thing we just started this for our songs you know it was it was it was led by you know it was me and jordan kramer that led the first meeting at melrose and then um joseph rogers and enrique Colazzo that that led the first one at santa monica the same week and you know again it was it was just for our song because but right away we started having people showing up for various reasons you know uh people that were resistant towards 12 step um that that wanted to try something different people that were just interested in Buddhism and, and, uh, you know, wanted to check out this group. And, and then a lot of people that had been sober for a while in 12 step that were wanting to deepen their 11th step or, or, or just deepen their spiritual practice in general. I mean, what's interesting, isn't it, is, is that you had people coming who were resistant to 12 steps and, and actually, if I think about it, one of the reasons why people were resistant to 12 steps, well, not just because of the, the God stuff, but because it was male privilege and white privilege. And yet I hear you saying that part of that male privilege and white privilege was recreated in this refuge recovery community. You know, it, in the, in the beginning, well, yeah, yeah. Well, it, the, the, the original facilitators and the teachers were all male. Uh, Enrique is a is is a, a Latino man. Yeah, um, yeah. So so there was there was that, and and then there as the the program within our sangha started to deepen a little bit more, more and more uh, women got to be part of it. Well, and then after about four years, uh, that's when you know we'd already started to share the the format with the Dharma punks groups, you know, throughout the world. And we were getting good feedback. And then, you know, and, and, and I will say that, you know, in the beginning, Noah was completely resistant toward writing a book about recovery. He did not want to get pigeonholed like Kevin Griffin or, or Darren Littlejohn. But, you know, as this thing grew and grew and there was more and more demand, it was it was just it was it was almost like a, a well, it was it was a necessity, you know, to, to create a book, to formalize this thing. And um, and when we decided to turn it over to a peer led to turn it into a peer-led program, uh, we—that's a lot of the women in the community got to, to be a part of it. Um, you know, um, Joseph Rogers' wife, Sarit, who's a, an amazing yoga-informed uh, teacher, she she became part of the program very early on. Uh, I would consider her one of the, the founders as well. And then, you know, at Melrose, we had we had some community members um, starting to take, you know, leadership positions. Um, you know, the the, the leaders of the meeting or secretary, I forgot what we called it at the time, but. Uh, so what made you, what made you leave your teacher? Cause I think Noah was your teacher and what made you leave refuge recovery, given that refuge recovery did change, um, change recovery. I mean, basically, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I did leave the Against the Stream Sangha years previously, but you know, this, this recent split, I only left refuge recovery officially uh when there was the the split that happened you know right before uh refcon five that we had at the refuge recovery conference number five that was in chicago you know within the last month um i um, yeah I, I i left that organization specifically you know against the stream because because of the bro culture um i i actually immediately my my new teacher at the time became um amatana sante who who 
recently disrobed, but you know, she was she's one of the the rebel Turvada nuns, you know, that that broke outside the the uh, the Thai forest uh, hierarchy uh, um, patriarchy that said that you know women can't be fully ordained nuns, and you know she she became a fully ador- uh, uh, um, I think her predecessor was Aya Tathaloka, but. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I immediately took on a, a, a female teacher and, um, you know, practiced with her for a while. And and um, yeah, and then I just, you know, I ended up in Portland and, and plugged into Portland Insight where my teacher, Robert Beatty, uh, was empowered by Ruth Dennison, you know, premier Western Buddhist teacher. So I, I am a part of a lineage now that's, uh, you know, founded by a woman. Um, uh, that, that, so why you know, does... and, and Ruth went out of her way to... Uh, empower women to teach and, and to share the Dharma. Yeah. So why the split? Why the split uh, in refuge recovery? I mean, many people will want to know why the split. Yeah, you know, previous, to, so we have, you know, it's very public, you know, Noah had his, all these accusations against him about sexual misconduct. But previous to that, uh, well, when the, when the book was first published, and in the book, it straight out says that uh, he didn't want to put his name on it. It was a committee of us that put this book together and put this program together. He wanted to publish it anonymously, but his publisher wouldn't allow it. You know, so so his name was on it. But he had said all along that he wanted to pass the the you know the, you know eventually have the book published without his name on it to and and to pass over the the name that he trademarked to his for profit recovery center. Um, he wanted to pass over the name to the nonprofit. He wanted to pass over that, you know, that that the ownership of that to the nonprofit, uh, because it was never refuge recovery was never any one person. Um, even though it was his name on the book, it was a, a a group of us. So there was already that conversation. There was already negotiation. I I, I believe with the, the nonprofit know about changing all that over. Um, there was, you know, I mentioned his for profit treatment center. That was problematic. Uh, it's my understanding that a nonprofit can not have a for-profit arm to the org- to their organization. And so there, there needed to be, for legal reasons, there needed to be a split between NOAA and his for-profit treatment center that he also named Refuge Recovery, which was very confusing to many people. And then Refuge Recovery, the nonprofit peer-led program. So there was already needing to be a split. The charges came out or the accusations came out, you know, and I was, was suspended from teaching. Then eventually, um, you know, his teaching status was completely revoked by Jack Cornfield and Spirit Rock. And he, again, my understanding of this is that he stopped the negotiation with the, with the nonprofit. Um, I would imagine a lot of it had to do with money. Basically, before all those accusations, there were rumblings within refuge recovery, which I think is really important for for people to know. But just um, move. I mean, I want to say thank you for being part of founding refuge recovery because you know it's been an important contribution to the recovery world. And you know, kind of moving on slightly, can you tell me? To you, what is male privilege and what is white privilege? Because we're going to have listeners listening, and there are we we know that actually that the recovery world is still frequented uh, predominantly by the the white 
population. And so therefore there is going to be male privilege. There is going to be white privilege. We know that there are male and females which frequent it, but how would you, what would you say is white privilege and male privilege? What do our listeners need to be looking out for? Yeah. Well, you know, for me, I was just so unaware of that, you know, because again, that's my reality. You know, I was, I was born a white guy, a white straight guy. Uh, you know, I was, uh, b- because of causes and conditions, I, I, you know, was able to, you know, speak in front of people. You know, I, I have an opinion. I have, a, I have a loud voice. I, I like to, you know, share things and connect with others, and, and that was just my reality. And when, you know, years ago, uh, and and it was specifically at against the stream when we started talking about uh, white privilege, white privilege, and, and and male privilege, and and, um, you know starting to see you know my eyes being opened more uh, less dust cleared from my eyes and starting to see you know when i was in a situation where i was with a a peer that was a woman people would refer to me first or ask me the questions you know not and not the woman that i was with um when when i was in maybe when i was in a you know again i was in la so you know la is in general is super diverse when i was with a, a a group of when I was the minority within a group, you know, as a as a white male, uh, and with this group of people, and and people would talk to me first, or people would offer me the the you know I don't know, I don't know if it was, there was a server, or, you know, or at a store or something like that. I would I would I I would see that again and again that people would go to me first instead of the other people that I was around. Um, you know, and, and, and just, and I mean, that's just the, you know, just seeing that, that visually, and then there's all the, the underlying thing, you know, there's the, you know, people just kind of, uh, assigning preference to a male or to a white male, you know? Um, so how does, how does somebody deal with that? Like, you know, if, if the two of us were together and, you know, I asked, a white person a question and all of a sudden that white person starts directing everything back to you how does one how does one deal with that what what would what would what would you say would need to happen you know it, it depends on the situation if it if it felt fairly benign or when i when and, and I, that's a that's not a skillful <laughs> response if if it felt unconscious and not hurtful purposely I would, I would just redirect, you know, I would just try and kindly redirect back to you again and again, if it, if it felt intentional and, and hurtful and, and racist, even I would, uh, I, I would suppose I would call it out to some degree. Again, it d- depends on the situation, but, uh, but, you know, just to, to put it out there in the open and say like, you know, I see this, this isn't cool. You know, um, I, I personally go out of my way. Uh, you know, so within the within the the refuge recovery community through the years, and you know now with recovery Dharma, uh, if I'm leading a day long or a workshop, I, I would I really love to teach with co-teach with a woman. Um, I've done that a lot. Um, when I'm doing groups, I, I love to co-teach with with women. Uh, you know, things that uh, at Portland Insight, unfortunately, we had uh, within our teacher organization, we had two women. And then one just retired, so now we only have one woman that's a, a current teacher at, at the center. Um, 
we 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 have been bringing in other women teachers and, and, and teachers of color as much as possible. Um, can't wait to get you there, by the way. <laughs> Love to host you there. But but yeah, I mean that's the thing, you know, calling it out, you know, making it uh make go, making it fr- from being the dirty little secret to you know calling it out in the open and saying you know this this is not cool, you know we can't we can't condone this thing anymore. Mm. Thank you, thank you for that. And I just wanted why why recovery dharma? How is recovery dharma going to be different from refuge recovery world services? You know, I mean, what what different are you going to be offering? Why recovery dharma? Yeah, well, the big difference is the associated with a personality, you know, and 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 with a hierarchy, uh, and and also that that the 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 nonprofit peer led thing. You know, with with uh, the statement that that NOAA and Refuge Recovery World Services has has put out is, you know, they they want to have their nonprofit program still, but also have a uh, for profit retreats that are led by empowered refuge recovery teachers, which is that is a for profit uh, training program as well. And then uh, he did say he wants to start recovery centers again under the name Refuge Recovery, but I think he said he wanted to do them as nonprofits this time instead of for-profit, um, if I if I heard him correctly. I think he did say that part. But so it's still, you have a nonprofit peer-led, but then with for-profit aspects of it. And then Recovery Dharma is just peer-led, uh, totally elected, um, uh, you know, nonprofit board, uh, not endorsing any any one name, any teachers, any outside organizations. So that's the big difference, you know. Mm-hmm. That there's 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 no one person that's going to profit or control or um, you, you just straight be associated with. That is and that's, it, is it, that's, is it, that's my role. You know, I was I was I could I still can say you know I'm one of the founders of Refuge Recovery and and then part of Recovery Dharma. I'm not one of the founders of Recovery Dharma. Maybe all of us uh, uh, that, that have started this program are founders of, of recovery Dharma, but I, like, I have no skin in the game, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just another one of the, the, the many with recovery Dharma. And I feel is good it, about it. Yeah. Is it possible to, um, set up a recovery movement without a person attached to it because even 12 steps i mean you know bill w has been dead a long time but actually we all know it was bill w who founded it and all and although they you know did have that tradition around um what's it the 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 tradition around it's not personalities i can't remember the specific tradition but there is a tradition where it's not about promoting yourself well, they they say principles before personalities. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Principles yeah. before personalities. Yeah. But we all know that, uh, yeah, that Bill W founded it and he is a personality. And I mean, Amy Reed um, at the moment is a bit of a personality for Recovery Dharma. That's the name which is being pushed at the moment. Sure. Well, yeah, she read the statement, you know, the, 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 the what the 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 mission statement the 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 introduction statement at the the, the conference um 
then she was part of the the literature committee and, and that and the only reason that anybody knows that there's other people on the literature committee too they just haven't you know said anything publicly yet so you know the the, the book is published anonymously i you know I, I i think to answer your question i i think it is possible i you know there's smart recovery out there i don't know who started smart recovery yeah um, that's very true they're, yeah. they're, 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 i'm sure there's a founder but like mm. they're not they're not known in the in the in mm. the uh you know in the, the public domain mm. uh mm. any of the, i can't think any of the other programs i you know uh na i i think only because i heard from a couple people they're called friends of jimmy there's some mm. guy named jimmy i don't know who jimmy is <laughs> i've never mm. read anything about jimmy mm. <laughs> mm. um you know so i i think it is they're mm. life ring that's that's a right that's a kind of a new i don't know who started life ring Mm, mm, mm. yeah so yeah no, it's, yeah it's very true you know and mm. and just my experience with refuge recovery uh because noah's name's on the book he was known but then you know through the years as this is, has gotten bigger and bigger uh, there are so many meetings that are outside of major cities that mm. they have no idea who noah is and 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 we're, there's been this split and a lot of people you know there's been a lot of division you know people have you know, many people have cho like very much chosen, you know, one side or the other. And I, I, I suppose I kind of fall in that category mm. myself, um, mm. uh, just out of feeling for integrity reasons <laughs> for myself. Mm. <laughs> but, mm. um, but yeah, there's a great many people that mm. they just, they have no idea who no is. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a program that's worked for them and, mm. and, you know, that it's, it's, not centralized or, 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 you know, they don't, they don't get any sense of hierarchy within it. I mean, I could say the same about eight step recovery. There are many people who don't know who Valerie Mason John is or who actually Dr. Paramabandu Groves is. But I think also, I think, you know, in, in fairness with people like Noah and myself, we are Dharma teachers. So it's not just about founding a recovery movement, but we're, we've been out there teaching retreats. So I think that's the difference with, you know, with something like with recovery Dharma. Um, yeah, uh, there are a few of you who are Dharma teachers teaching retreats, but it, it is very different. I think it is, it is different. And, uh, but I wanna, I wanna move on. Cause I think, you know, we've, we've heard quite a bit about recovery Dharma with my conversation with Amy Reed. Cause I think there's a lot more interesting stuff to speak yeah. about in our <laughs> in, in recovery movement and the one thing that i really wanted to speak about is uh things like ibogan and ayahuasca you know because uh this is something that definitely is uh something i have to think about i mean i live in in the the heart or the home of ayahuasca and ibogan in 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 the west and what do we what do we think about that in terms of uh, people in recovery? What what do we think about that? Yeah, so this is an interesting conversation, and you know, and I will say that uh, I think hallucinogens played a big part of my recovery. In my the the last bender I had, uh, it was a cocaine bender in Las Vegas, but I took mushrooms in the middle of the week without intention. I took mushrooms to uh get messed up i don't know if we can <laughs> I'm, I'm censoring myself here <laughs> not drop dropping any f-bombs but you know I, I took mushrooms to to lose myself you know to, to trip hard and what happened was i came out of that trip with the clearest insight that i had to stop doing everything 
you know, until that point, I had been under the delusion that it was just hard drugs. It was cocaine specifically, and but you know, I did I did heroin and you know other drugs and was around, but it was I I was kept holding to that delusion that it was hard drugs I had a problem with, and like with alcohol and marijuana, I didn't do it daily, so I didn't have a problem with that stuff. But you know, after after coming out of this trip, I just had this very clear insight that I was absolutely creating my own misery by any substance that I was taking that, that, you know, took me out of the present moment that, 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 you know, took me out of reality. And so, and that was it, you know, I, I knew I needed to do whatever it, I, it took to, to get sober and stay sober, you know, finally. And, uh, and I did it. And so I, previous to that, I've had through both, you know, LSD and, and psilocybin, I've, I've had some big insights previous to that, like uh, changed my career a couple of times because of, um, insights I received after these these psychedelic experiences. So, uh, you know, all these years later, just, um, I, boy, I would say probably about 15 years ago, I first read about Iboga. Uh, I've read about a, a clinic in Mexico specifically that was giving, uh, you know, for heroin addicts and, and, and uh, crystal meth addicts, uh, this, this, you know, hardcore hallucinogen, and they were leaving leaving the trip from, you know, the Iboga trip with both mental and physical cravings for, for drugs and alcohol removed. And at the time, my best friend was really strung out on heroin and uh, doing really bad. And I, and I offered to send him down there to Mexico and he refused at the time. He, you know, he said he wasn't ready, but then about eight years ago, he, uh, and then, you know, in that, you know, from that, that seven years at, after me first reading about Iboga, he got worse and worse, and he he actually got hooked on meth and heroin, and got in a really bad place. And he called me up, you know, again, it was probably about eight years ago, and said that he got a hold of some ibogaine, and uh, he wanted to rent a hotel room and he wanted me to sit with him, you know, for for a couple of days while he did it. And and I did, you know, I I was with him for three days in a hotel room, and and I I. It was an interesting experience. He he way overdosed himself. I think he took three times the amount that he should have, uh, which is very scary. You know, it's not it's not a it's not a benign thing. It's not a this is not a recreational drug. It's it's um it's it's pretty hardcore, and people have died from it. You know, their their heart rate has slowed down enough. So you know, it should only be done in a clinical setting. But uh, I saw him face down on the bed, clutching his pillow as if he was surrounded by this tornado of his experiences and his trauma and, you know, and just all the shit he was, he was in this, this, this kind of battle with it. And, uh, you know, and I just held space with him. He came out of it and yeah, he, he, uh, was no longer an addict. He was no longer, um, compelled and, 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 um, obsessed and, and, uh, tied to heroin and, and, and meth and changed his life. You know, he is a pre, <laughs> the scary thing he was, you know, as a heroin and a meth addict, he was uh, also an, uh, a respiratory therapist in ICU in a, in a local hospital. So he's got mm -hmm. medical training. Um, he has since, uh, he has a clinic in Mexico and in, in one in Costa Rica and offers Ibogaine to some of the hardest cases there's there's one guy i know that went to 30 different rehabs as a heroin addict 
and you know, and he tried so hard with 12 step and in, in, in other programs and just couldn't get it. He did uh, ibogaine once and changed his life, you know, and, mm-hmm. and opened a, a, a post care recovery house, you know, for, for mm-hmm. ibo patients. So, I mean, in a, in a way it's, it's, it's looking at this whole area of um, abstinence and harm reduction and, and in a way for me, you know, often when people say, you know, is Buddhism, you know, on the side of abstinence or harm reduction, and I just say, you know, Buddhism, it's 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 not dualistic in that way. But, you know, when I think about it pers- personally, it's all about harm reduction. And we do know that, you know, people who take opiates that to try and go the abstinent route, it's almost, you're failing from from the moment you start. And I know that in lots of clinics now, they're looking at using Suboxone as something, to, as, as a harm reduction or like methadone as a harm, as a harm reduction. But coming back to this uh, Ibogan, I mean, first of all, I just want to say to our listeners, like, you know, Gary, you're really lucky that this person didn't die under your watch. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah not yeah, to, yeah. I mean, I hear that you did it because this was somebody who was really close to you and blah, 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 and you took a, a skillful risk. So we're not encouraging people, you know, if you've got a friend who says, not I'm going to do this to be with them, we're not encouraging you to do that. No, if, if uh, yeah, I can't, I can't stress it enough. If this is something that, uh, that you're interested in, please research medical facilities that offer, offer it, look up the reviews, make sure that they have a crash cart, make sure that they're, they have, you know, nurses on duty or, or doctors on duty. Uh, yeah, it's, there, 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 there are people that have died from it for sure. It's not, not something to do at home. It's not something to do in somebody's, you know, backyard. It's, this is a serious, serious thing. I mean, one of my teachers and, you know, my, one of my teachers in, in the field of um, trauma, in the field of trauma recovery is uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. You know, one of the things that, you know, he, he stresses is that it's so important to, if you have a therapist, that that therapist is to become redundant. And in the same way, because, you know, we know that Dr. Gabor Mate, you know, it's, you know, it's 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 somebody who's uh, who speaks on the subject of ayahuasca, and my thing is is that in a way ayahuasca is like the therapist, and and in the same way that the therapist, the actual person, has to become redundant. I really think that what isn't that the same for ayahuasca or ibogan that actually that becomes redundant because what I actually see is I mean I have friends friends who I respect who who drink ayahuasca but it's something that they do every couple of months and so in a way are they are they just developing a dependency on the ayahuasca or the ibogan or even the ketamine I couldn't even believe that people are using ketamine now I mean that's that's what all my mates use ketamine that's what we did to to get high and like rose yeah (laughs) Oh, it's a rave drug. Yeah. 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 You know, interestingly, uh, I am right now, I'm currently working with a 16 year old person that is not in a detention center, but in a lockdown facility that was highly suicidal and nothing worked. They, they'd been in this program for two years, you know, out of society for two years as, you know, harm to themselves or, or others. And the state of Oregon actually agreed to um, pay for, uh, ketamine treatments and, and it, and it actually worked, you know, it's, it's a, uh, disassociative. So somebody that is consumed with suicidal ideation or consumed with PTSD or, you know, other, other forms of trauma, mm. 
they get separated from it. So they actually get to experience their mind without that, without being consumed, without being mm. completely clouded by clouded mm. and driven by that, you know, by that trauma or that, that, you know, this ideation. Mm. So, you know, and, then that, and that's with these hallucinogens, I, you know, I, uh, people that have been sober for a while, um, you know, when we're, we're, where I've landed many times myself, you know, because I've had such great experiences with hallucinogens, sometimes it seemed really attracted to me. Like, you know, boy, I'd, I'd maybe, you know, I've done so much work on myself and I've, I've, you know, I've, I've worked a lot with my trauma, but maybe these, these hallucinogens, you know, this could be the, you know, basically this could be the, 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 um, the, the get quick scheme, right? <laughs> you know, instead of me doing years of more, more uh, therapy, maybe I could do this hallucinogen and, and touch into my trauma. But then I think about the states that I reach in my meditation practice that are, are not dependent on substances. Um, I think about the fact that I'm just so lucky that I don't have heart problems and that I didn't lose my mind and I'm not uh, deeply affected or, or harmed by the amount of cocaine and other drugs that I did for decades. Uh, so I don't want to risk uh, playing around with, with uh, some of these hardcore hallucinogens uh, as, as a sober person. But, but uh, you know, people that are struggling, people that are relapsing again and again, I, I think it's something to look into. You know, uh, uh, here in Oregon, there are therapists that do work with patients with psilocybin um, mm -hmm. and, and MDMA as well. And so, you know, I think, you know, with the right set and setting and with, you know, the amount of research, if it's the right thing for you that you and your doctor decide, uh, I think it can be helpful. I think that's the, that's the important thing because, you know, I've had clients who have either drank ayahuasca or done MDMA and they have been completely dysregulated after mm. Um, yeah. you know, after the experience. And this is this is one of the reasons why Dr. Gabor Mate has really developed this compassionate inquiry so that actually if people go through that process and they are completely dysregulated, then you can go into inquiry into people's experiences. Because the thing is, is that we know, like I know for myself, you know, when I took hallucinogens that sometimes it was the most amazing trip and sometimes it completely left me discombobulated. And I, and I will say, you know, partly there's part of myself thinking, oh, you know, ayahuasca is, this is the thing everybody's talking about. Oh, should I try it? And then I think, oh, that's my addict's mind. And I might like it. And then I just have to remember, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, was somebody who took quite a lot of acid and I had the worst ever trip and actually it um it was mescaline that actually brought me back together again i always remember i remember hmm. having that acid trip going back to university and thinking what the hell am i doing here i've got to get out what what am i doing here and i remember being out at a rave and a friend offering me some mescaline and this little tiny crystal and she said what well, aren't you going to take it because i was trying to flick it off because i was scared and so because she was in front of me i had to take it and that was it i thought that is it i'm just never doing hallucinogens again because even with certain marijuana you can hallucinate and that really yeah, yeah. sent me sent me over the hill so i do think that 
if people are really looking into using ayahuasca, ibogaine, MDMA, or, or whatever it is, it's to really work closely with a therapist. Because often people who are taking you through those journeys aren't skilled enough to deal with what comes up. Right. Yeah. And then, and then a big thing is intention. Like what, what is your intention here? Is it, you know, is it, is there any part of you are wanting to do this just because, uh, you want to lose yourself? You know, you want to, you want to trip, you want to be, you want to go to a different universe or is this, you know, is this something for healing? You know, is this something for that, that, you know, maybe this is part of your, your spiritual path and, and, you know, that that's not, you know, not everybody can answer that uh, affirmatively. But know? isn't it all so. about intentional volition? I mean, Gary, I, the reason why I got into meditation was is because I, I got high. I mean, I mean, quite honestly, some of the trips that I've had on meditation have been far better than any of the hallucinogens I took. That was my motivation to begin with, but then it became something else. In fact, meditation was my harm reduction, seriously. I mean, hmm. I was one of those ones who just got completely blissed out and I it, it'd be like, I'm going on a two week trip, you know? So again, I think whatever we do, it is about, um, intention because what I want to say is is that when I used to meditate and I used to have those altered states and those trips that was fantastic but nothing much was changing in my life I was still taking the drugs I was still being right. unethical and I had to shift my intention yeah 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 well yeah it's all, it's it, it, it should be all about intention for sure yeah you know? But, you know, my thing is, is that I suppose my concern is, is that actually in a way, you know, are people just getting dependent on something else? You know, if you start taking ayahuasca once a month, isn't that you just getting dependent on just a different stimulant? Well, of course, of course. And, uh, you know, and I think there there is an argument that hallucinogens aren't addictive, but but it, it, again, it's about the, the, the intention you're setting and it's about your relationship to it. So, you know, I've heard time and again that people with, with a, a good degree of um, self-awareness that they've seen, you know, after a certain point of doing the hallucinogens, they're just, they're not getting any more information. They're not gaining any more insights. They're just kind of repeating the same thing again and again. So it's again, this, like, just like the Buddha talked about the parable of the raft. Right. You, you, you get to the edge of the river, you take the raft across the river. When you get to the other side, are you going to carry this heavy thing with you or are you going to put it down? Exactly. And I think, you know, there's I know a lot of people that have got to that point with hallucinogens mm -hmm. that just, you know, I'm not gaining anything else from it. Why am I doing this? I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm 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 stuck in the story that, you know, this is part of my path or this is my this is my thing. This is the thing that's going to cure me. But but, you know, when they're when they're when they're clear about it when they when they really are honest about it it's they're 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 it only takes you so far you know and that and that's where with meditation i've you know i've gotten again i've gotten some great insights on uh you know with because of <laughs> hallucinating through with the you know whether it's you know acid the uh, psilocybin or or um uh you know a, a few other drugs but um what where i've gotten in my through my practice the the amount of transformation the amount of letting go the amount of 
cleansing, purifying that I've been able to do with meditation is far superior than any substance. So let, let's talk about um, some of these practices which can really open up the heart. I, I mean, I think it was Ramdas who said something like, you know, people who take an hallucinogen, it's like, yeah, you can have five minutes with God. <laughs> but actually, people who practice and use meditation, you can have a lot longer sitting with God. So let, let's look at some of these uh, practices, because I know that one of your favorite practices are the Brahma Viharas, the, the heart practices. And, and I think also you've introduced a, a, fifth, a fifth one, but let's uh, talk about these heart practices and how they resonate in your own life. Sure, yeah. So, you know, again, I started in the Zen tradition and, and, and back then with Zen, I never heard about Metta or anything. It was just about Zazen, you know, no, well, Zazen or then chanting, you know, uh, wasn't about any kind of instruction. It wasn't about any kind of, uh, you know, any anything that really directly opened the heart. Indirectly, those practices do. I also just think hearing you talk about your experience about being blissed out early on, Early on with me with meditation, my practice was pretty harsh. You know, I, I brought a lot of, uh, you know, I grew up watching the Kung Fu movies and, you know, David Carradine on, on TV with the Kung Fu TV show. And, you know, I'd see, you know, when monks slouched, they get whacked in the stick with a, with a bamboo, you know, they get whacked in the back with a bamboo stick. And I brought that kind of harshness into my practice. And I suppose it was effective to some degree, you know, about getting out of the, 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 stories in my head, the resentments, the, 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 the judgment, the, the constant criticism of everything that I did said. So, you know, through my practice, I, I started to be able to, to disidentify with that, to, to, to be untangled from that stuff. But when I, later on, when I, when I switched to the insight practice and started practicing the Brahma Viharas and specifically uh, early on for me, metta and forgiveness, and, you know, forgiveness is, you know, just really just kind of switching the phrases around. You know, again, in the West, we've developed this way of practicing metta with using phrases, you know, for this methodical practice, offering it to ourselves and other people in our lives, using phrases that, you know, the friendly phrases, uh, kind phrases, uh, uh, phrases that acknowledge interconnection and, and, and healing, safety, uh, and, and and then sometimes when it's when it's really hard when you know wanting to offer to myself or others you know may you be happy and it's just met with com complete resistance and you know rather than fight it on the cushion for a long time you know just transitioning to phrases of forgiveness and I forgive you I forgive you for all the things that you've said and done whether it's intentional or unintentional et cetera et cetera so those two practices specifically I was able to completely transform my relationship with myself and, and you know one thing i've been kind of landing on a lot lately you know in, in in 12 step the one thing i heard early on i heard this this idea of feeling comfortable in your own skin and and i heard that so many times and and i kind of understood the 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 logically like what that might look like i certainly didn't know the experience of it early in sobriety but after you know, actually, I, I I took a commitment of offering myself meta and or forgiveness every day for a year. You know, I had such a bad relationship with myself. I had so much so much resistance toward offering myself this kindness 
that, you know, I made this, I was given the instruction to do it for every day for a year. And I actually kept going. I got so much out of it. It became such a revolutionary practice, a thing that, that, you know, transformed my relationship with myself. And then, and then in turn with the world, I did it every day for two and a half years. And I mean, it just changed everything. It's radical. And, I just want to just step in there and just say that that practice of loving kindness is radical. And, and Mike, we, sh we, sh we share something because I found that practice so incredibly difficult to do the first stage that I just intuitively started doing that and, and did it for a good couple of years. And I would put myself in every stage. It was like, forget it, which is why I developed the four basic needs of the heart to unpack that first stage. So I totally hear you on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, you know, then just kind of going back to the point, you know, like I, I started it with the intention of, well, just like, I started my meditation practice because I was just desperate to get away from the suffering that I had, the, the inner, the inner warfare that I had in my mind, you know, that's, that's why I, I, I got sober, you know, uh, I started, or I'm sorry, that's why I got, um, uh, that's why I started meditating, you know, to, to just out of desperation and the, and, and then getting sober was just, again, that was just another level of like, I am creating my suffering. I see clearly now that I am, I am the cause of my suffering. I am completely causing this misery. So, you know, I need to put these substances down and, and really do some, some more work to, to be able to meet life without dulling my, you know, or without deadening my, you know, these, 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 you know, emotions, these thoughts. And it was meta and forgiveness that was a, that, that, enabled me to actually do that you know um my again my intention was just to to uh, to not hate myself <laughs> like i did and and what happened was uh that criticism and judgment for myself dropped away but also the criticism and judgment for others dropped away so then i started to show up in the world instead of looking at people as just objects you know we're looking at people as the, the the worst physical quality that I that I can see immediately, you know, and and, and, are, and actually starting to see them as people and fellow people people on the path with me, you know, seeing the, you know, having compassion for the homeless person on the street and and you know and having love and appreciation in my heart for the mother with her little child and and you know that that you know instead of constant judgment instead of constant criticism instead of constant othering and, 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 and separating, you know, and, and, and becoming, feeling comfortable in my own skin and then feeling a part of and connected with, with others. I mean, that's, that's freedom, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, it, it, it really goes back to that, that first stage of just realizing that actually the more I've cultivated, uh, a more harmonious relationship with myself. My whole world has changed. It's, it's, it's yeah. completely transformed. And that was the hardest to actually really see that I had to improve the relationship I had with myself. I, you know, I, I could blame everything. I could blame my family conditioning. I could blame this partner. I could blame that. But actually when I stopped blaming and actually just really began to work on liking myself, things just changed radically 
and continue to change. And that many of us who have addictions just have so much self-hatred, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That, and that's been, yeah, carry on, carry on. Carry on. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, uh, that's the one thing, you know, coming to, you know, leading all these different groups, you know, in recovery, uh, that meta and forgiveness seems to be the one thing that anybody that's brand new to recovery, fresh off the relapse, uh, people that have, I, you know, people that have been sober a long time and 12 step that haven't really found a, 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 a deep spiritual practice. You know, they mm. all seem to be so attracted to the meta practice and, and find it beneficial mm. immediately, mm. you know, rather than just, you know, just following the breath, you know, coming, you know, coming to practice and, and, you know, just getting a simple instruction, follow the breath can be very difficult. But then, you know, to, to introduce this friendliness, to introduce this kindness, that seems to be way more effective early on. That's mm. been my experience anyway. Mm. And then. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, there's this kind of joke that, you know, the fifth Brahma Vihara is gratitude. And so that's been part of my daily practice for at least eight or nine years now. And that's been a real game changer too, you know, to, I, I love the Melody Beattie, you know, that she's the author and in, in, uh, Hazelden author. She writes a lot about codependency, but she says that uh, gratitude turns what we have into enough and more. And, mm -hmm. and you know, cultivating the daily practice of gratitude has really, you know, this kind of hit me. My original intention with gratitude was to uh, get myself out of that mental loop of like, poor me, why me? You know, why does this keep happening to me? Why, why is everybody else's life seems so good and I'm, I'm having these hard times or I'm not getting the, 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 the successes that other people are having. And then, you know, and, and starting this daily gratitude practice, you know, really looking at the things at hand. What am I grateful for right now? The fact that I'm breathing. I got two arms and two legs and got a roof over my head, you know, that, that kind of thing. And then as the years go by and really, you know, the, the, this, this deep practice of going from the head and just mentally or, or, or just logically knowing you know things that we're gratitude that, that, that we're grateful for but then really moving into the heart and and you know cultivating this really deep practice of like drinking gratitude into our hearts of mm -hmm. the things that are around you know just the you know just i'm getting stopped in my tracks hearing a bird sing or or you know a light breeze you know on my skin mm. and uh, and or just being with my partner you know and just, uh, just like yesterday there was something that happened she turned around and looked at me and I was just washed over with gratitude and appreciation. And, you know, so that's freedom, right? I mean, just this, that, that, that direct practice. And, you know, and, and it, it could be an argument that, you know, gratitude is just part of mudita, of, of appreciative joy. You know, that's even a phrase that, you know, in, in the West that many people say, you know, mudita, may I be filled with gratitude or may mm. you be filled with gratitude. But, you know, making it a little more of a direct intentional practice too has been mm. has been transformational mm. and i love i love being able to offer that to, to others mm. Mm. I'm so I, I mean it, it's pardon i'm so grateful for you <laughs> in my life. I, yeah. when i think of you my heart smiles oh that's beautiful thank you that that that's very beautiful and and i just with this gratitude i know very much in the in the 12 step tradition isn't it is to have this gratitude practice and you know my partner 
she's been um, doing gratitude and sending a gratitude to a friend in New Zealand over the past year and a half every day they send uh, gratitudes and I think it's such a beautiful practice and every time I take up that practice something changes it's 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 something does change and yeah it's great I have gratitude for you in my life gratitude for anybody who comes into my life even if it's a challenge because it's a gift isn't it it's a gift for me to to change and do something different even if somebody hates me it's still a gift you know i have to work with it and i have we have to remember i i remind myself that there were people who hated the buddha there were people who wanted to kill the buddha okay even the cousin devadatta wanted to kill the buddha so why should i think myself different that nobody's not going to like me but actually it's the practice it doesn't matter if people don't like me doesn't matter if people are angry with me it's what I do with it you know and as long as I can come from a a pure heart yeah 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 isn't I I still think that part that aspect of uh just what you said there you know that are the the most difficult people in our lives the 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 biggest challenges the the trials and tribulations those truly are our greatest teachers Mm. and that that just rings my bell still. I mean, that's such a revolutionary thing. Mm, mm. I wish I would have heard that early on. Mm, <laughs> but, mm, and, I, and, mm. and I didn't, but, but I'm so glad that I've been able to cultivate it now. Mm, yeah, yeah. Every, every day, every day is a, is a gift and every day is, is a teaching. And, you know, I'm just being aware we, we, we live in a society where 10 minutes focus is pretty hard and we've been chatting for over an hour which has been great but i'm just wondering if there is something that uh you haven't mentioned that you really wanted to mention something that you could leave our listeners with gary you know other than what we talked about i guess the 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 thing that i've been really you know really deeply drinking into my heart, you know, the fact that I have such a great support system, you know, better now than I've had my whole life. And this is such a big, you know, whether you're in 12 step and and they talk about fellowship being such a part of, of, uh, you know, 12 step. And, you know, if you're part of, you know, any kind of Buddhist Sangha, you know, uh, taking refuge in Sangha is such a huge part of it. And that's the one thing I I can't stress enough, you know, to, to, to really deepen your practice, to, to support your practice, you know, find others, you know, don't, don't just keep it to yourself, you know, find others that can, that, that, that's reciprocal, that can support you, you can support them, that can motivate you, you can motivate them to be accountable to, uh, you know, just like, you know, you and I were part of that, uh, the, the Gen X Buddhist teachers conference and, and community, and, and we really set this intention of, you know, having to watch out for ourselves across the lineages. You know, we don't want to keep making the same mistakes that our previous teachers had had about unethical stuff, about sexual misconduct, about um, taking advantage of power. You know, like, and that's something that I really want to say because, you know, I come from the Tree Ratna lineage, and and people who are familiar with the Tree Ratna lineage will know that my my teacher and my community has been um, dogged by uh, sexual misconduct. And one of the things it's really made me look at, because over the past couple of years, we've had so many um, 
Buddhist teachers um, being outed around their appropriate uh, relationships with students. And the thing that it's really made me realize is, is just how strong the fourth and fifth feta are, the fetters, the 10 fetters, which are, which are mental, which are mental bonds. And, and the fourth and fifth is a uh, sense desire, sense desire and ill will and hatred. And, and what it's made me really see is, is that, you know, people can have a strong practice. They can have a lot of insight, but yet the pull of sense desire and ill will is just so strong and it sabotages our practice. And then I have to look at myself and where is that pull for me? And I can really see, you know, it 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 doesn't manifest in inappropriate sexual relationships, but actually with greed, you know, there's still greed that I'm having to work with. You know, I mean, one of my core addictions was being a, a blimic. And so, you know, still that relationship with food, that relationship with greed. But what I'm 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 saying is is that you know, even for me, because, you know, the, the eight step uh, recovery, it's it's still very new reco- recovery dharma, it's still very new. How are we going to be able to teach people about healthy boundaries, you know? Uh, and that is just so important because, you know, we're working within a community where people are vulnerable. They're coming, they're walking through our doors vulnerable. And even yeah. those of us who are in leadership position, we're vulnerable too. And how do we take care of ourselves? Because it's gonna, it's gonna continue to happen. It's gonna continue to happen. But what are the safeguardings? What, what are the things that we can put in place to take care of ourselves? Yeah, you know that's reminds me of uh, something that I've been uh, another thing I've been getting up on the soapbox about. Uh, you know, because of you know our programs collectively, our programs, your program, and and the, the ones that I'm a part of, we are attracting people new to the practice. You know, we're, we are getting some people that have an established practice, but a great majority of the people are coming uh, don't know anything about Buddhism. And so they start hearing about these Buddhist practices and they hear right speech. And so many people have a really improper view or, 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 or not a deep understanding of right speech and think that, ooh, you know, there's something happening over here, but I'm not really not sure. And I don't want to say anything because I don't want to upset anybody. And so nothing gets said. And then the stuff, you know, keeps happening. Right speech is about saying the uncomfortable things when there is harm being done, when, when you know, people are being taken advantage of, when there's, when there's sexual misconduct, when there's, you know, th- uh, things about money or, 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 or just about power, um, uh, you know, in these, these peer-led, you know, programs. You know, people, you know, there's some, there's, I don't know how many times I've seen somebody starts a meeting and they think it's their meeting. You know, they, 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 they want to lead it for, you know, for years without, you know, without turning it over to somebody else. And the, the, the big thing that we all need to practice is, you know, if, if, if we see something, we need to say something in, in any of the rooms, you know, if, even if you got just a little thing that you're feeling a little funny in your gut, talk about it. You know, talk, you know, depending on what program you're in, you know, if it's a if it's a sponsor, if it's a mentor, if you need to talk to, you know, some of the other uh, people in your group that you feel comfortable with, you know, get this stuff out in the open, ask questions about it, get it, get it out in the open air. 
Um, and this is why I think we really need to be working together. And I, you know, it's one of the conversations that I want at the Buddhist Recovery Summit, rather than thinking, this is my program, Recovery Dharma, or Refuge Recovery, or Eight Step Recovery. How can we begin to work together and create a community like the 12 Steps? Because under the 12 Steps, there's NA, there's OA, there's all, but they all come under one banner. And and they have managed to create community. It hasn't been perfect and, and stuff happens, but there's a lot we can learn from that community. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We really yeah, don't have absolutely. to reinvent the wheel. There is a lot that we can learn. And may we learn it. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, we, we, we have to learn it. It's a necessity. Um, it just hit me with uh, BRN, with Buddhist Recovery Network, it would be great if we could have a cross-lineage grievance council as part of BRN. So anybody in any of the programs could, if they have a problem, if they don't feel comfortable talking about it in their particular meeting or in their community, that they can talk to, they can place a complaint with the grievance council and then have that. Uh, you know, it, it's, I know it's a fine line, you know, you don't want to turn into Dharma police, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, there, there, there should, you know, what, the one thing that we talked about with, you know, people that are, victims of of these unskillful whether it's you know sexual whether it's power whether you know whatever they mostly want to be seen and heard you know mm. so having a place where they can feel seen and heard about these 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 mm. problems mm. Uh, this is an idea i'm throwing out there the other thing too that i'm really trying to you know to to kind of scream at the top of my lungs is is the issue about consent you know with with recovery groups so many people are so used to just giving out hugs willy-nilly you know, not asking, just just throwing their arms around everybody around, and that was one thing that goes along with my my white male straight privilege. Uh, I used to I used to just hug everybody, uh, thinking it was a good thing. You know, I had this intention in my heart that I wanted to connect with others. But you know, again, I'm six foot four. I go to hug somebody, I'm swallowing them up. Mm. And if 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 you don't want to feel hugged, or if you know, the, uh, you have some sort of you know, trauma around around physical touch or or, that, or or you know being held uh that could be very destabilizing very you know at the very least very uncomfortable if not worse yeah. so that's the one thing we all need to start asking about the hugs and about um about physical contact mm. and about mm. um you know even with like confidentiality maybe we've heard some fantastic things in meetings shared by others you really need to get their consent before you take it out of the room mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot, a lot for us to to think about. And um, I'm looking forward for us, for many of us meeting at this uh, BRN summit. And hopefully we'll have people from the different strands of Buddhist recovery that we have. And, it, you know, I just really want to stress that everyone is welcome, you know, whether it be heart recovery, which I think is one of the first, uh, actually, no, I would say San Francisco Zen Center was the first uh, Buddhist recovery program that we know to begin. Hmm. And it's over 40 years old. And then we have yeah. the heart of recovery from Shambhala. And I think it's really important to identify these because I think, you know, it all becomes about refuge recovery, recovery dharma, and actually, there are, have been programs that have been out there which have pre preceded us. 
But I just want to stress that, you know, whether you're somebody from Refuge Recovery World Services or you're from Recovery Dharma or from any of the other Buddhist recovery programs, we welcome you to the Buddhist Recovery Network because I think, as we've said in this conversation today, that really the, these recovery programs aren't about personalities. It's about a matter of life and death. Yeah. Absolutely. A matter yeah. of life and death. And I always say, you know, for me, you know, I didn't write eight-step recovery. It was the Bodhicitta that wrote it. Mm. It yeah. I was just the vessel for the teachings to to flow out. That that's it. it. Wasn't me who wrote that. Okay. And just a vessel to to make those teachings accessible because the oldest recovery program that we know it is the Dharma. Right. It's the oldest yeah. therapy program that we know of. It's the Dharma. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's the one thing I can with with all our programs. You know, if, if anybody ever says to us, well, your your new program, uh, you know, AA has been around for, what, 70 years or whatever. You know, that's established program. Well, actually, all of our program, anybody that's under the BRM umbrella, we're we're working with a program that's 2600 years old. And <laughs> also remember that Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob in the 40s or 50s explicitly said that the noble eightfold path could be literally adopted by the 12-step community literally adopted so you know and that whenever i quote that it it gives me goosebumps to remind us that even dr bob was aware of the noble eightfold path and how that that was a way out of suffering Yeah. yeah And all these programs, all these programs which are out there are all ways out um, of our suffering. Yeah. So thank you so much because I know that you have to skate off to somewhere else. Uh, It's been a great joy speaking to you. I look forward to collaborating with you and being part of the recovery tribe to take the Dharma out to those people who are in the hell realm of addiction. And may we, may we be part of Shittigarbha. Shittigarbha, you know, the Kashitigarbha, the, the Bodhisattva who pulls people out of the hell realms. Yeah. 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 May we, may we continue with this, uh, this, not just this experiment, but this path and, and, you know, and well, and then just embracing the fact that in supporting others, we're supporting ourselves. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's, all, let's all wake up together. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. May we both be liberated. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure, and I really look forward to uh, seeing you soon. And thank you, Thomas, for, for uh, holding space for us. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any feedback, feel free to email me at finding.valentine at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Thomas Valentine. It's always lovely to hear from listeners. I'll send us off with a dedication of merit from the Recovery Dharma book. Refuge does not arise in a particular place, but in the space within the goodness of our hearts. When this space is imbued with wisdom 
respect, and love, we call it Sangha. We hope that the pain of addiction, trauma, and feeling apart actually leads us back towards the heart and that we might understand compassion, wisdom, and change ever more deeply. As we have learned from practice, great pain does not erase goodness, but in fact informs it. May we make the best use of our practice, and whatever freedom arises from our efforts here today, may this be a cause and condition for less suffering and more safety in our world. Bye everyone.